Let's do it. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. I was once described as the manager, the mentor, and the visionary who went to the theater with an unfocused dilettante and raised the curtain on a superstar. Hello and welcome to episode 32 in our series exploring the history of the management rights company Mainman, renowned in the 70s for transforming the business side of rock and roll. While allowing their artists to explore their creative freedom, Mainman pioneered promotion and marketing techniques that became synonymous with the decadence, extravagance and indulgences that are now part of rock history. Yes, we were amateurs. We were working from passion. We worked 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We did everything and anything that it took. That is not professional. Anytime we hired anyone professional, it didn't work. We would get rid of them because we did it better. Main Man worked with a very diverse range of clients that included Amanda Lear, Sidney Bullins, Mick Ronson, John Mellencamp, Mott the Hoople, Dana Gillespie, Mick Ralphs, David Bowie, Lou Reed and Iggy Pop. David would come around in his gigantic lavender platform heels with a, a new hair color every week and we'd all go off and drink tea at Small's Cafe. In this episode, we're featuring another of the really important early Bowie collaborators who, unfortunately, is no longer with us. The bass player from The Spiders from Mars, Trevor Boulder, who died in 2013. Like Rono and Woody, Trevor grew up in Hull and spent many years playing in local bands before he finally teamed up with Woody and mixed band Rono. He'd been playing for them for about six months in early 1971 when fate stepped in and he was asked to play with David Bowie. Here's how Trevor remembers it. I should go back to how I became a member with Woody and Mick. They did Man of Soul the World and then they left David and went back to Hull and decided to form their own band and they needed a bass player and uh, Mick came and sort of badgered me for about two months into playing with them and I said, nah, got my own band, don't want to do it, you know. And in the end he said, well, can you come and sit in with us until we find a bass player? And I said, uh, all right then, yeah. And we used to rehearse uh, in a village hall in Woodmansey, funnily enough, just outside a hall. Um, and of course I sat in and then finished up just being there. You know, that was it, I joined. And about six months after we'd been playing together, David rang up and said, do you want to do the John Peel show? The in concert. But he wasn't going to use me, he was going to use Abby Flowers. So we all trooped off down to London. It was a Sunday, got to David's house, Haddon Hall, and walked in, and of course there's Jeff there and all the other people there that were on that, Dana Gillespie. And uh, David turned up with his long hair, blonde hair, and his pair of jeans and a T-shirt on and all that. I actually met him just before that, actually. I met him at Harrogate, in a theatre in Harrogate. He was uh, supporting a band there. He was doing a, an acoustic set, just in him and an acoustic guitar. And we went along to see the show with Mick Muddy. And I met him there for about five minutes. We went backstage. and that, But he's, he was just a regular, down-to-earth, nice guy. He was, you know, he was, he was fine. And they all set up in his music room. He had a big room in the house that was with a big piano and that. And they all set up, and I thought, well, I'm not doing anything, I'll just sit and listen. And then he says, no, you've got to play. Baby can't do it. And so I'm going like, well, how many songs have I got to learn? Twelve. 
So I had to learn 12 songs in an afternoon. I remember sitting in the dressing room uh, after we'd sort of done a run-through and I can't remember which song it was that I couldn't get right. I kept just making mistakes. I mean, I was a young kid, never been in a studio in my life before and quite nerve-wracking. And uh, I remember sitting in the studio with, with the bass guitar up against my ears, in the dressing room rather, and practising and practising to get all the songs right just before we walked on. And luckily enough, got through it all and it, was, it turned out good. When we first went down there, I, I, I didn't really know what was going on, but obviously he'd got De Vries behind him at the point, that point in time, and De Vries was backing him to do the stuff he needed to do to make it and that. So I think David was confident, but we didn't really know what was going on because we just went in and did Hunky Dory as a one-off sort of thing. You know, we just thought we'd... He asked us to do the album, so we went in and did the album and we thought after that, that was it, we'd all go trooping off back to Hull and carry on with Rono. And, of course, we didn't. We got persuaded to stay down in London and uh, then go on and do Ziggy. It was just like, let's go in the studio and, and record an album. It was not like, we're going to do this or we're going to dress up like that. It was just, let's do the album first. So we went in and did it, and all we thought was it was just another album. You know, he's just doing this other... But then he started to talk about, well, I, we want to do this, I want to do that, I want to change things. He took us to see Alice Cooper at the Rainbow. And Alice Cooper was great. We we all loved it, you know, it was a brilliant show. And I remember walking out and he says, oh, we'll be bigger than them. We'll do better than that. We can do better than that. And then he started to explain that he wanted us to change and then wear the costumes. But we'd been to see uh, Clockwork Orange and he wanted us to dress uh, in, like, the boiler suits, but colourful with the boots. You know, everybody thought that we were dressing like spacemen, but we weren't. We, they called them droogs, I think. We were actually modelled on Clockwork Orange. He came back from going to America, and, and he, I think uh, Iggy had a big influence on him. You know, he'd seen Iggy perform or something, and he thought, well, the punkish thing is the way to go, you know, to make a, a stamp on the music ingredient and to change his image and change what was going on. Because at the time, there was a lot of folk music about, wasn't there? You know, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, all that sort of stuff was going about. And he just saw it that the music industry was a bit boring. And he thought he'd really turn it around. And, of course, he used his theatrical side as well, didn't he? You know, I mean, he was an actor, a mime artist, you know, uh, and he used all that. And Angie was a driving force behind him. She really was. She was the energy in the engine room that pushed him as well. You know, he wrote the songs, but she came up with a lot of the ideas and pushed him along. When he first, we first put it together, you, you've got to remember that we used to set up our own equipment. We used to drive to gigs on, all together in the car, in the van, and, and Angie used to do the lights. She used to set the lights up and stuff. So we were a band, and we used to play pubs, and there would be, like, four or five people in there, in the audience. And we were dressed up in all the ziggy gear. So, I mean, we were a band. We went out as a band, and it felt like a band, and he was the lead singer in the band, and he wrote the songs. And we were the rest of the, you know, we were the engine room behind him. With the Spiders, it, we, we were doing listening to Cream, Jeff Beck, you know, a lot of rock-free bands like that, you know, a lot of blues stuff, Fleetwood Mac, original Fleetwood Mac. He never really played Iggy, he just told us about him. We did some Lou Reed stuff, of course, you know, because we did a Royal Festival Hall, Save the Wells concert, of which Lou came on and, and we did White Light, White Heat. We, we wanted to play a Zeppelin and we wanted to be that sort of a band, you know. And I suppose when we got into doing Starman and stuff like that, it was a bit sort of pop for us. I mean, there were some great rock songs on there. I mean, Moon Age Daydream, you know, Hang On At Yourself and all that stuff, you know. There's some brilliant rock stuff there. 
my special one was uh, when I walked into the studio uh, one night and they'd been mixing. Oh, Mick had done the guitar solo on Moon Is Daydream. And we listened to it through on the big speakers in the studio, quite loud. The hairs were standing up on the back of my neck, and I was thinking, like, God, this is great. <laughs> you know, this really is good. And I think that was the point when uh, I knew that it was something was going to happen just off that one song, and it, and that one song is a big part of the the whole album. We we weren't that bothered once we started to make once you'd made top of the pops, you know. I mean, everybody wanted to be on top of the pops, you know. That was the big thing, you know. When you're a musician, if you've done top of the pops, you've made it. And then to do all grow whistle test as well, which was like you never thought you'd do that, you know. And we did. And it started to take off. Uh, you had to understand the music as well. I mean, Unky Do is a beautiful album. And we did a lot of stuff off Unky Dory as well, which I adored doing. Trevor had a very unique vantage point playing on stage with David, beginning with that John Peel session and then watching this amazing transformation into this rock superstar in a very short period of time. I think he stole a lot from other people, you know, like Iggy. He'd seen Iggy do it, you know, like Jagger did. He, he took bits from a lot of people and he used them for his stage show. I mean, he didn't think anything of, of running out into the audience. He would just run out into the audience, up the aisles, and people would be in shock that he was standing next to them singing, you know. And it would work. They'd all stand up and go crazy, you know. He'd do anything to get them going, the audience. But he did get better and better at it. He turned himself into a real superstar singer, you know. He got on with his life and did what he needed to do to make us all very big, uh, get himself in the press and say whatever he wanted to say. And we just carried on playing the music, you know. That was what we did. I mean, with that first tour of America that we did, we did, I think it was 12 or 14 shows in three months. We were doing, like, one a week or two a week, if that. Then we were staying in the Beverly Hills Hotel and we were staying in all the best hotels in New York and limousines and, uh, you know, and the, and the press was seeing it and they thought, well, this must be a huge band because, you know, of what they're doing and stuff. We started out the tour in Boston and we played in a little theatre... There was three theatres in one, one room sort of area. And one was a, a 600 seater, and one was a 1200 seater, and one was a 10,000 seater stadium. And we did, the first night we played, we had, I think it was like 150 people in the 600 seater theatre. And DeFries said, when we come back here at the end of this tour, we will sell out the big one. And we all went, oh, yeah, yeah. And we did two nights in the big one, sold out. And that was just for the publicity of being there uh, and the press seeing the way we lived and stuff. Just going up there and playing those songs every night, dressed up in funny clothes, I suppose, you know. But uh, for the audience, you could see, because they all dressed up with us, you could see yourself in the audience because somebody had copied you, the way you looked and everything, you know. So the whole audience was actually Ziggy Stardust and Spaddis from Mars. You were all part of it. It was an event, yeah. The costumes were OK, you know, because we understood them. They were of clockwork orange, but the makeup thing and all that was a bit, oh, you know, you know we were supposed to be a hard rock band and all that. And then, of course, I had a full beard before that. Now I'm wearing this makeup and stuff, you know. That was a bit strange. We got used to it very quickly, though. You know, I mean, we only wore it on stage and it was all gone and we were back to jeans and T-shirts. I think where the makeup thing comes from as well is from the mime side of it. Bowie's mime thing, they always wear lots of makeup. When he originally tried to get us to wear the makeup, you know, Ronson was like, oh, from, being from the north, not bloody going to do that to me, I'm not wearing that. <laughs> I, think, you know, I think he was ready to go back to Hull when Bowie mentioned that. But we wore it not as a glam rocky type thing, he wore it as a theatre type makeup. Because he said, if you don't wear makeup, your face won't stand out on stage. 
you know you just won't project enough as an individual yeah. you, you just won't you need to put something on that's why actors wear makeup you know and of course then everybody else jumped on it and started wearing too much makeup didn't they in the glam rocks and what about those legendary silver sideburns of his that was a full beard I mean actual ZZ top beard because I was a blues player and all the blues bands and the rock bands had beards even the Beatles all had beards didn't they so I'd grown that and of course when I we would doing Ziggy and stuff, I kept looking at Ronson and Woody and Bowie and thinking like, wow, God, they're all clean-shaven. I must look really weird with a full beard and long hair. And so I decided first to shave the middle out. So I finished up with sideburns and a tash. And Angie was watching me while I was doing this. I said, shave the middle out. Looking in the mirror thinking like, no, nah, that don't work. That looks awful as well. So I shaved the tash off. And as I shaved the tash off and shaved it, Angie said, don't you take any more off. Don't you shave, that's your image. Don't you shave them off, that's your image from now on. And it was. It was her idea to spray them. But she'd say, come on, we've got to spray them sad beds. You'll stand out if you spray them, you know. She came into the dressing room one night and she had tins of this spray stuff, all different colours that she was spraying everybody with, you know, just to try them out and stuff. Touring as part of a tight-knit band and then seeing Bowie become this huge star, Trevor had an interesting perspective on the group dynamic. Towards the end of it, he became a big star, yeah. Unfortunately, I think it was a bit sad that he became the star and we became the backing band. The last British tour we did, he travelled in a limousine and we travelled on a bus. So uh, a lot of the times we wouldn't see him till he walked on stage. He'd have his dressing room, we'd have ours, he'd walk on stage, we'd play... He'd walk off stage, he'd go back to his dressing room, he'd get changed and go back to the hotel. And we'd go back to the hotel, we'd sit in the bar and drink and he might sit with some other people talking. And it was a bit sad, really, because uh, from being a band, it, it became him the solo artist and us his musicians, sort of thing. And I think that was the start of the end of the Spadders from Mars, you know, with Bowie. When Bowie decided it was time to kill off Ziggy at the now legendary Hammersmith Odeon concert in July of 73... Woody and Trevor were just as surprised as the crowd that night. At the time, yeah, I was the same. What's he on about? You know, this is the last show we will ever do. What's he mean by we? And I looked around at Woody, and Woody just looked at me like and was shaking his head. What's he on about? And we didn't really know. And, of course, we finished the show, and then after the show, we were supposed to go to America three days later. And, of course, after the show, he said, oh, well, that's it. We're not doing Ziggy anymore. We're not going to America I don't know what I'm going to do, blah de blah de blah and that's the end of it, basically, you know, so... Mick knew, because Mick had a solo album to do, and I didn't think that would affect him, and I, and I think the reason David didn't tell us, because there was a good chance that me and Woody might not have done that last show. Mm. We might have just gone, oh, forget it, we're not going to do it. If you're going to do that to us, we won't do it. We would have done it, we would, because I actually have said many times that I actually think that David was right because he couldn't carry on being Ziggy Stardust. And I think he wanted to change. And I have no qualms with that at all, that he wanted to move on and do what he wanted to do. And I think he was right to do it, to get himself out of that image quickly before it actually swallowed him up and spit him out, sort of thing. He was becoming Ziggy Stardust. For a man that talented, who had lots of other things he wanted to do, he needed to retire it. I mean, he may have been able to keep the Spiders on, I don't know, but... uh, we might have got in his way. It was a bit strange, the party afterwards, because we were a bit confused about it all. And it felt, after he'd said that, that that was the last time we'd performed those songs together. 
there was a big table where there was, you know, Mick Jagger and Bowie, Lou Reed, Iggy Pop, Jeff Beck, Mick, Mick Ronson, and a few other people sitting. And me and Woody sort of skated around the edges. I nearly didn't do pinups. When Woody wasn't doing it, I said, I thought it was a shame, and I sort of had a go about it, but got told, well, if you don't like it, you don't have to do it either if you don't want. And at which point Mick Ronson said to me, shut your mouth, shut your mouth, <laughs> you know, don't say any more. But I did do it, you know, but I, when you break a band up, that that's good, that plays great together. It's difficult to move on and, and play with another drummer, and especially one like Enzo Dunbar, he's got a great reputation. You know, it was a great thing to do to play with him. I mean, I did Ronson's solo albums with him as well, the first one, but he wasn't Woody. He wasn't the same character as Woody, you know, because Woody's a great character. So I did miss him. Trevor had one more gig to play, the final 1980 floor show at the Marquee Club in October. But by that time, he was less than enthusiastic. We rehearsed for it, of course, you know, for that show. But, I mean, the day that we did it, I just drove into town, went to the Marquee, parked my car at the back, walked in, got dressed, walked on stage, filmed it, walked off, got changed, walked out and went home. It was so non-event for me. And I just thought it was strange. From being spiders from Mars with doing Ziggy and all that to this weird floor show thing. And of course I hadn't seen all the other stuff that he'd done. When it all came out, I hadn't seen any of that. I just did the band on stage bit at the marquee and that was it, you know. But uh, I just remember thinking that, no, I'm off, I'm going. I don't like this, I'm off, I'm going away, you know. Uh, he rang me one night. This was the last time I ever worked with him, I suppose. He rang me and said, would I come in the studio and, and play bass on some song he was doing for Diamond Dogs? And I went in and we played this song and it never made the album. It was just a very good song, I suppose. It was just a ballad type thing. And anyway, it didn't work. And uh, I remember picking my guitar up and putting it away and we all went, oh, well, this song doesn't work, you know. And David was sitting in the studio and he had his back to me because if you went through the control room door, the speakers were in front of you. And he had his back because he was on, on the desk sort of thing. And I said to him, um, all right, Dave, I'll see you. I'm going home now. See you later on, mate. And he just put his arm up and just sort of waved quickly. And that was it. He never even said goodbye. <laughs> just, that was it. End of three years, you know, three years of life. Having spent many years playing with Mick Ronson in Hull and then for three years with the Spiders from Mars, Trevor became a very close friend and, like so many of us, a huge fan of Rono's guitar playing. So he's exactly the right person to ask to describe Rono and his talent. was my best friend for many years... He always played the way he played, from being a kid, from us being in Bravel bands. I was in a band with my brother and he was in the Rats. And we always used to play this place called Beverly Regal, which is a cinema converted into a club. And the bands would all play there. And he was always magical as a guitar player. People used to go just to watch him play. He had this huge reputation for being a guitar player. Within Yorkshire, you know, I mean, at the time. Lovely man. When I joined Rono with him, uh, I was the only one who had a car. And my wife, or girlfriend at the time, he, uh, his girlfriend, we always used to go to Brid when we weren't working, if we had nothing to do, and he loved to play bingo. <laughs> <laughs> he was a bingo fanatic. He would get the seafront and play bingo all day. All day. And he, he smoked roll-ups. That was his big thing, smoking roll-ups. And he liked to bet on the GGs. He liked to go in the betting shop. 
And he was a regular Joe, you know. He was just a regular northern man, you know. He just enjoyed doing all those things. But a great guitar player and a really sweet man. No, he had a wonderful, creamy, warm sound, didn't he? How he got that, I don't know. It's just in the hands, isn't it? You can give an amplifier and a guitar to one person and it'll make it sound one way and to another person and it'll make it completely sound different you know and that was in mix hands the way he played it he would just pick out melodies that would get you every time he wasn't a complicated player he was a simple player but brought out beautiful melodies he had that ability to do that that's the late trevor boulder recorded shortly before he died in 2013 There are some great pieces of rock memorabilia from Trevor's time with the Spiders from Mars that are part of an ever-growing archive of main man documents, including photographs, articles, telexes, letters and production notes, a lot of them never seen before, that we're adding to the main man label website each week. It's a great record of a very exciting period in rock history. You'll find it at mainmanlabel.com. And on the website, you can also check out the other episodes in the main man series. This has been a Zinc Media MM Tech production. I'm Des Shaw. Thanks for listening. <laughs>